Go to the book of 1 Timothy, if you would. 1 Timothy. And while we are turning there, uh, let me let you know, this is probably one of the most exciting parts of the ministry God has called me to do. Uh, there's nothing that excites me more than uh, seeing God call a man into the gospel ministry. I remember several years ago now, I guess it's been, I can't really remember how many years, I stopped at John and Deanna's house, presented John with the idea of becoming a, an associate pastor here. It was a thrill for me to see a man of God who had been called by God and felt led to, the, to be here as part of our ministerial staff. It's a blessing to see when God's men answer God's call. And now we come to see God do that again, as we have a church have an opportunity to commission a young man, a young man. You're young compared to us, you see, so you've got to understand this. It's like, <laughs> didn't ask for that, Steve, but thank you. <laughs> We're going to commission this young man into the gospel ministry today. It's exciting to me, first of all, because it tells me that God is still calling men into his service. Praise God for that. It's exciting also because there are still men out there who are willing to answer the call. And number three, it's exciting to me because there is still a work to be done. Otherwise, God would not be calling people. And so all that to me t- together is what makes this service so special. We all have a ministry to do, and God has called each of us specifically into some sort of work. God has called Matt this morning into a particular work that he has for him to do. Now, as we start this morning, I would like to do a little personal reflection, if you'd allow me to. I was called into the ministry when I was about 14 years old. And although I served my church in various ways after that time, God did not set up an opportunity for me to pastor until I was 56 years old. So 42 years later, God called me into the ministry specifically. And I'm serious when I tell you, I don't question that at all. I don't question why God did it that way. I don't know what the reason was for that. I know this. God's timing is always perfect. I do know that. And when I was 56 was the time, and not a day earlier and not a day later, that was the time for God to call me into this work. Now, before I had done that, I had been a a teacher for many, many years at an adult Bible fellowship. Some of you are here who are a part of that way back in those days. Uh, When I had the opportunity to teach that that ABF, uh, when that was first presented to me, uh, and actually when the church the opportunity to start a church was first presented to me, I will tell you what my main reservation was in accepting those positions. I didn't see how in the world I was going to come up with a new message every week. <laughs> Scared me to death. I had no idea how I saw myself not capable at all of coming up with something new and fresh every week, presenting that message, and then doing the, another one the next week for the rest of my ministry. I remember Sandy and I at one point were biking in Pennsylvania when we were given the idea of starting an AB, or being a part of the ABF. And I told that exact thing, thing to her. I don't see how I can do that. How can I come up with a, minute, a message every week and do it and then have to come up with a brand new message the next week? How will I ever make that happen? I always thought being an evangelist was a good option. Because you come up with five or ten good messages, you got them covered. Never have to come up with another message again if you don't want to. If those are good enough, you're just good to go. Uh, I think that's a really, really good calling. Anyway. I've not taken a poll, but my guess is, except for those men who are brimming with self-confidence, I believe anybody taking on a ministry would probably have that same concern. I've not talked to John or Matt about that, but I'm guessing that was their concern when they began to think about uh, being called into God's ministry. How do you do that? And I confess to recently, I still worry about that. I still think every so often, how will I come up with something new and fresh for this church to hear and to respond to every week? Well, here we are this morning to commission a man into the gospel ministry, and I want to address that concern this morning. Uh, Paul had led a young man to the Lord by the name of Timothy, and subsequently Timothy was called into the gospel ministry. And so Paul wrote two letters to him to train him and to prepare him for the work that God had called him to do. And it's my belief that in those letters, Paul addresses the very issue that I just presented to you. Paul knew that no matter how resourceful he was, no matter how capable he was, Timothy was a young man with limited experience in the ministry. And so part of what Paul does in these two letters to Timothy is he gives Timothy a direction on what to preach on. 
And as we look at these things that Paul tells Timothy this morning, we're going to see that Paul puts a specific label on them. The title of our message this morning, Paul calls them faithful sayings. Faithful sayings. Now, I want you to consider that label just for a second. Uh, the synonyms for the word faithful are words like authentic or accurate or truthful or believable or trustworthy. That is what Paul wants Timothy to preach. That's the message that Paul believed were most needed in Timothy's day. Now, it is my opinion nothing has changed since Timothy's day to the day we're in today. I believe the faithful sayings still need to be preached from God's pulpit today, just like they were 2,000 years ago. Because what I'm finding is there are very, very few things and very few people in this world that are trustworthy or authentic or believable. There are very few people in this day who you can depend on. Very few people who follow through on what they've committed to doing. Uh, listen to those who have a position of authority in this world and take note of the promises they make. And then track how many of them actually fulfill and come through on those promises. A political leader or a religious leader or a boss or a coworker or maybe a friend or a family member may make sort of some sort of commitment to you. And sadly, it is more and more rare for those who make those commitments to actually then do what they've committed themselves to do. And I'm finding that to be true both within the church and outside of the church. I'm finding that even people in the church will make a commitment to that church or to a ministry within that church or to the people who are part of that church. And then they'll have some sort of change of heart and will simply renege on the commitment that they've made. And they'll find some way to justify doing that or they'll blame somebody or something else for the re- for that decision they've made. And so the sad reality is there is an extreme lack of faithfulness or authenticity or trustworthiness in our world today. It is lacking in the lives of both the saved and the unsaved alike. And so Paul saw the need for Timothy, uh, and there's a need for pastors and teachers today to proclaim sayings that are faithful, faithful sayings. There's a need for the messages that come from the pulpits of churches across America to be messages that can be believed and depended upon. Pastor Matt, there's a need for you as you begin your ministry to teach messages that are faithful, that are faithful, that people who listen to those things can depend upon them and rely upon them. God's church and God's ministers need faithful sayings, faithful sayings. And so in the book of First and Second Timothy, I'd like for us to look this morning at three faithful sayings that Paul is encouraging Timothy to preach. And the sayings that he identifies are foundational. In other words, if we preach nothing else but three, these sayings or some variation of them, we will teach what every person needs to hear. And we can teach it as long as we need to. And God will be pleased with our ministry and the work will be accomplished. I believe that with all my heart. And so the point of looking at these this morning is twofold. First, this is instruction to Matt. Instruction to any preacher or teacher here this morning, uh, someone who's called to minister the word of God on the type of messages that we are to be presenting in our ministry. And number two, it's going to help every believer here to be aware of the messages that we need to hear from the word of God and how we as individuals in the church need to respond to those messages. And I want to reinforce this point one more time. Please hear me. These are faithful sayings. If we hear these and take heed to them, we can rely upon them to do the spiritual work that our world needs to see done, that we need to see done personally in our lives. First Timothy chapter one, look at verse 15. First Timothy 1.15, here is the first faithful saying. Paul says, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Amen. There's the first message. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. 
Luke chapter 19, verse 10, Jesus Christ makes it very clear for the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. I remember a preacher years ago relating the story of a woman that he witnessed to. And she was very prim, very proper. He began to give her the gospel. And as he did that, she began to catalog all the good things she had done in her life. She talked about feeding the poor. She talked about serving meals at the church. She talked about providing clothes for those who needed them. The preacher saw he was getting nowhere with her. And so finally, exasperated, he asked her directly, Lady, are you a sinner? And quite offended, she said, Me a sinner? Of course I'm not a sinner. And the preacher said, well, then God couldn't save you anyway, because God only saves sinners. (laughs) Now, I'm not suggesting that's the best way to do that. I'm not suggesting that's the best witnessing approach. But it makes the point. The point is many refuse to trust Jesus Christ because they don't see themselves as sinners. And in fact, the whole concept of sin has been so watered down by the world and even by many churches that the need for salvation is less and less apparent to most people. But here is the message of the gospel. Jesus Christ did not come to seek the found. Jesus Christ came to find the lost. He didn't come to seek the righteous. He came to pursue the ungodly. He didn't come to seek the well. He came to heal the sick. He didn't come to seek the free. He came to free the captured. And if a person doesn't see the lost condition that they're in, they'll never seek the salvation God provides. You know that well people, unless they're hypochondriacs, never go to the doctor? You know, sick people who think they're well also never go to the doctor. The first step to getting somebody to accept the cure is getting them to accept the fact that they're sick. So when we consider the message that our young preacher or a seasoned preacher should be presenting, it's the message that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. He came to save sinners. And there are two implications to that that must be included. One is a negative and one is a positive. Here's a negative first. It is the job of every preacher and really every fisher of men, to convince people of their sin. It is my job, it is your job, uh, with those who have the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, to let people know that they have an illness that they will not be able to cure themselves. It doesn't matter how good they are. It doesn't matter how smart they are. It doesn't matter how well-intentioned they are. It doesn't matter how sincere they are. They will never cure the illness that plagues them through their own efforts. In fact, if you boil it all down, that's why God gave the Old Testament law to the children of Israel. He wanted to overwhelm them with the idea that his standard of righteousness was simply impossible for them to meet on their own. God wanted them to see just how entrenched, just how ingrained their sin was in their very nature. He wanted them to be overwhelmed with the idea that they had no remedy for sin in themselves. No matter how they kept the law, it would never be enough. Here's how Paul put it, Romans chapter 3 and verse 13. He said, but sin, that it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good, that sin by the commandment might become exceeding sinful. You know what your folks need to see around you this morning, folks? Those people you rub shoulders with, they need to see how exceeding sinful they are. (laughs) That's what they need to see. That's the first thing they need to see. If they see anything else first, it's not going to get them anywhere. What they need to see is they are exceeding sinful and they've got no cure for that sin on their own. We need to let people know in every way possible that they are sinners and that sin, unless it is removed, will carry them straight to the lake of fire. They need to know that. Now, do you see why somebody who is truly doing God's work and truly giving out God's message is despised and ostracized by the ones they're called to minister to? The flesh has no interest whatsoever in hearing that message. And the flesh will do everything that it possibly can to avoid hearing it and avoid accepting it. You know what God says? Give it to him anyway. 
it doesn't matter the reaction. Give them the message. Give it to them. And if you'll give it to them, God will do the rest of the work. You see, folks, what you have in the world today are people who are avoid hearing the message of the gospel. And a minister of Jesus Christ, no matter whether it's a called minister like a Matt or like an ordinary person out in the street, whatever that person is, if they are called by God to somebody to witness to, I will tell you, they will avoid the hearing that in every way possible. You better have thick skin if you're going to be a witness for Jesus Christ. You better have thick skin if you're going to be the servant or the minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because God has given you a message that must be heard, but it is a message that nobody in their flesh wants to hear. That's the negative aspect of this uh, faithful saying that Paul has given us this morning. Let me give you the positive aspect. Christ Jesus came to save sinners. <laughs> I'm a sinner. Christ Jesus came to save me. <laughs> That's the good news of it. If you're a sinner, Jesus Christ came to save you. If you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, God saved you from your sin. If you're watching today by Facebook or by YouTube and you've never trusted Jesus Christ, you're a sinner and you'll never do anything about it on your own. Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners. Christ Jesus Jesus came in the world to save you. He came to save me. Now, in spite of what our flesh says or may say, that is the greatest message anybody could ever hear. Because I'm going to put it as simply as I possibly can. Had Jesus Christ not done that, my goose was cooked. (laughs) I was done for. I could do nothing about my sin, as we've already seen. The only thing I do with my sin is pay the penalty for it. If somebody didn't come to rescue me from my sin, I was a goner. Let me read you Galatians 4.4. Hold on to your socks. (laughs) But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. When the fullness of time was come, God sent his son and gave us redemption and adoption. When all hope was gone, when all options were exhausted, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, showed up, and he showed up for lost sinners. And he showed up to do what we could not do. He redeemed us from our sin. He paid the price for us. He snatched our souls from the clutches of the devil and pulled us from the miry clay and set us on a rock. We have heard the joyful sound. Jesus saves. Jesus saves. Spread the tidings all around. Jesus saves. Jesus saves. (laughs) What's the first faithful saying that should be on the lips of every called servant of God? It should be the message of Christ Jesus came to save sinners. The song says, I'm so glad God saves old sinners. I'm thrilled and amazed how he set them free. But the biggest surprise in redeeming old sinners is that he would save a sinner like me. (laughs) Praise God for it. Go to 2 Timothy chapter 2. The first faithful saying that we could preach every week and it would be okay to preach it. It's a message that must be heard. Christ Jesus came to save sinners. Now let's look at the next one. 2 Timothy chapter 2. And look at verse 11. It is a faithful saying, for if we be dead with him, we shall also live with him. If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we believe not, yet he abideth faithful, he cannot deny himself. This faithful saying is actually in four parts. I'm going to take each part individually, and let's look at them this morning. First of all, if we be dead with him, we shall also live with him. 
The death referred to here is not physical death in the sense of Jesus Christ physically dying on the cross. But there are several verses in Scripture that do talk to us about the death that should occur after we trust Jesus Christ as our Savior. I'm sure many of you have memorized the old verse in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. When we trust Jesus Christ as Savior, the only way to live, the way he wants us to live, is to put this flesh to death. In the sense that this flesh no longer controls or has any, exerts any control over us. When Jesus Christ died on that cross, his hands and his feet were attached to that cross. And in his flesh, he could do nothing about that situation. He had no power whatsoever in his flesh to do what was happening to him because that flesh was crucified. That flesh was dead. And the will of the flesh had no say whatsoever in what occurred because it was crucified. Hold your hand there in 2 Timothy, if you would, and go to the book of Romans. Go to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. Paul explains this in some detail in the entire chapter of Romans chapter 6. We won't look at the whole thing this morning. I'd like you to look at a few verses there if you would. Look at Romans chapter 6. Look at verse 1. He said, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us, are, which as we're baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into his death? Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Not talking about water baptism there, talking about spiritual baptism. The day you trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you were placed into him. You went down, that flesh went down into that grave with him when he died. That's where it is. So that flesh has no power over him as he hung there. That flesh has no power over us this morning. We've taken part in his death. Look at verse 11, if you would. Romans chapter 6, verse 11. He says, Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That word reckon means to understand. Understand that you as a believer are dead to sin. Look at verse 14. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. We're dead in Jesus Christ. As a result, I am dead to that sin that once ruled me. I'm dead to that sin with which once I identified. And since that is the case, sin no longer has dominion over me, no longer has control over me. It can't do it anymore. It may attempt to speak and have its voice heard, but now I have the option to ignore what it says, which I couldn't do before I was saved. What in the world could a dead person actually say to you that had any worth whatsoever? (laughs) And so instead of living in the depths of the sin that once controlled us, Paul says, you now live with him. And in that context, Paul is saying that being dead to sin, we can now live and look just like Jesus Christ. This entire year, we're focused on being Christ's presence to our world, wherever that might be. Do you know why there are so many Christians who look nothing like Jesus Christ to those around them? Do you know why there are believers in this room this morning who struggle to look like Jesus Christ? It's because they're trying to look like Jesus Christ while still accommodating their sin. And it doesn't work. You can't do it. That's impossible. To live like Jesus Christ means that sin must be dead. We must reckon that sin and that flesh to be destroyed. And we can't make any place forward. We can't occasionally entertain it or allow it to have impact on what I say or what I think or what I do. So the first part of that that saying is this. We're dead. Look at it again now. Second Timothy chapter two. Look at verse 11 again. For if we be dead with him, we shall also live with him. 
And then it says, if we suffer, <laughs> we shall also reign with him. Now, God has an exciting future planned for his church. And part of that future is a kingdom he's going to set up someday, a thousand-year reign that he's going to put onto this earth. Revelation chapter 5, verse 10 calls us uh, kings and priests. And it says in that verse, we shall reign on the earth. Jesus Christ wants every believer to be reigning in that kingdom with him when he sets it up. There's only one prerequisite. We enter that kingdom, we earn our place rather in that kingdom by suffering while we're here. You don't get into the kingdom that way, but you earn your position in that kingdom that way. You earn a place of honor over there by assuming a place of dishonor here. The law which cannot be changed is this, folks. Reigning requires suffering. Reigning requires suffering. I must be willing to take the abuse here. I must be willing to surrender the comforts here. I must be willing to be numbered with the outcasts here. And here's the secondary law, folks. You can only reign in one place. You only reign in one place. If you choose to have the good things here and make money here and pay a minimal price to serve God here, you've chosen to reign here. This is your kingdom. This is as good as it gets, if that's a choice you've made. And you'll not reign over there. Or we can choose to accept the abuse and accept the torment and accept the ridicule and accept the physical pain that goes along with living for Jesus Christ. We can accept what Jesus Christ went through and we can identify with his sufferings as Paul told us to in Philippians 3.10. And if I will do that, then I will reign in God's kingdom over there. So here's your choice. You can reign in an evil, depraved, sick world or you can reign in a kingdom of light that God himself has designed and prepared for you. You got the choice. One or two. Now for me, it's a no-brainer. I pick God's kingdom. And what that means is I'm going to miss a lot of the good stuff here. I'm going to miss a lot of the nice stuff here. I'm not going to get everything that's available to me here. But I am willing to trade all of that to get what God has prepared for me in the kingdom that he's been planning since Adam put that fruit into his mouth. (laughs) And that kingdom should be a great part of your motivation to serve. You shouldn't need much more motivation. If you find yourself having difficulty uh, serving Jesus Christ, just think about reigning with him for a thousand years. Serving with him side by side as a king and a priest for a thousand years in a select place that is given for you and a select job that he has just for you to do in that kingdom. Amen. Should be all the incentive you need. Second Timothy chapter two. Look at verse uh, 12 again. If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. Watch it now. If we deny him. He also will deny us. Now, that is connected to what we just looked at. There's a colon there. You can see that. It's connected to the thought before it. This has nothing at all to do with our salvation. has everything to do with our reigning in the kingdom that he has set up for us that he talked about just a minute ago. And what he says there is that if you deny him, he'll deny you. Listen to me. No one who has ever trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior has any concern whatsoever that God will ever deny them. You are his child. He will not deny his children. As a good parent, he would never do that. However, if you deny him here in terms of your service, if you deny him here in terms of the life that you live here, if you deny him here without serving out of extreme gratitude for all he's done for you, don't expect him to give you a place of honor in that kingdom when he sets it up. If we deny him here, he'll deny us there. And our position in that kingdom will be open disgrace, not glory. 
I can't imagine living in a kingdom of God for a thousand years and every day being reminded that I could have had so much more and has a much better place in that kingdom had I simply honored Jesus Christ here in a greater way than I did. Had I simply chosen to deny myself here and be in that kingdom at a place of honor over there. Folks, the Bible says God gives us around 70 years, give or take. 70 years and a thousand years. Which would you rather deny? (laughs) You want to deny the 70 and get glory in the thousand? Or deny the thousand and get glory for 70-ish years? Only a fool would make that choice. No offense. (laughs) Only a fool would make that choice. If I deny him here... He denies me there. If I suffer for him here, he gives me a place of honor over there. All there is to it. Go back to it again. Second Timothy chapter two. Look at verse 13. I love this verse. If we believe not, yet he abideth faithful, he cannot deny himself. (laughs) My opinion about what God has said, my opinion about him. My opinion about his promises do not impact his faithfulness in the least. God will do what he has promised to do. He'll Whatever he has committed himself to, whether I believe it or not. Now, this may be controversial to you, but I believe this is what this verse is telling me. I have known believers who have trusted Jesus Christ to be their Savior. There was evidence of that. And again, I'm no judge. I can't say for sure. But every evidence says they trusted the Lord Jesus Christ to be their Savior. And then at some point in time, for some reason that I don't know, they went back on that decision. And they denied ever being a child of God. That verse says, if we believe not, yet he abideth faithful. <laughs> that person may say, I don't know Jesus Christ as Savior. But if they were sincere when they made that choice, if there was true heartfelt belief when they made that choice, they may say, I don't know you. But God says, well, I know you. <laughs> I know you. Because God is faithful. God is faithful. And notice what he says. He cannot deny himself. You see, God resides in us as believers in Jesus Christ. If God resides in us, he can't deny us. He lives inside us. So if we believe not, yet he abideth faithful. But there's another way to look at this as well. I've also known believers who have read a promise in the word of God. And they've decided for whatever reason God has not or will not come through on that promise. Can I tell you something? That does not change the promise in the least. That promise still stands. We give ourselves way too much power sometimes. We are often under the mistaken impression that what we think somehow changes what God does. (laughs) I don't have that much power. By the way, neither do you. And the message here is a very simple one. It doesn't matter if I believe or not. It doesn't matter if I think God has come through or not or that God will come through or not. It doesn't matter what God's going to do in my future and what I think about that. My position on those things does not matter in the least. What matters is what has God said? What has God promised? And whatever God has said and whatever God has promised is the only thing that makes any difference whatsoever. Now, again, you have a choice. I have a choice. I can enjoy the promises and hold to the one who made them, or I can not deny the promises and turn my back on the one who made them. And if I deny the promise, the only result of that is I lose taking part in the joy of the promise that God has made to me. I've told this before. I'll tell you again. This book is full of promises. This is a promise book. I've not done the counting myself. Someone has told me there are 3000 promises in that book just for this life right here. Not talk about any of the promises go beyond this life. 
3,000 promises in that book for you right now, today. And can I tell you something? You can read one of those promises and say, God's not coming through. You know what? God's still going to come through. He's still going to come through. Don't worry about it. Just let him do what he does. God will always come through. Now, you may not find anybody on this earth like that. But you've got one. Jesus Christ. He will always come through on his promises. So there's the second faithful saying that we are to proclaim. And it's in four parts. And every part of that faithful saying is important to our living this life the way God wants us to live. If you're in the teaching, if you're teaching the gospel, teaching the word of God, that's a message we ought to be teaching. And those who are under the teaching of a man of God will know how to live after salvation if they are aware of that faithful saying. Let me give you the final one. Go back to First Timothy, if you would. First Timothy, chapter four. First Timothy, chapter four. Now, this one I am fascinated by because this is something we have been talking about over the past 16 months. This should be very, very familiar to you. First Timothy, chapter four. Look at verse eight. For bodily exercise profiteth little. Waiting for an amen. Okay, we'll keep going. Amen. <laughs> Thank you, brother. I knew, I knew Jay would do that. <laughs> but godliness is profitable unto all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation. The faithful saying that Paul talks about here is the faithfulness of the saying that says, godliness is profitable unto all things. God, Paul focuses on godliness as a faithful saying that Timothy should be communicating to those under his ministry. Now, we've talked about godliness a lot over the past 16 months. I'm not going to go through all that again this morning. Let me simply say this. Godliness is God-likeness. Godliness, like God. God-likeness, that's what it's all about. And what Paul is telling Timothy is that is something that every believer needs to know about. Every believer should be looking and acting and thinking just like God does. And that is something required of every believer since we are God's representatives here on earth. Now, a couple of things about this I think that are interesting. First of all, if you check a concordance, you're going to find that Paul uses that word godliness ten times in the two letters of Timothy. Ten times he uses that word godliness in just these two letters to this young preacher. And then if you look at the book of Titus, it's used one more time, another book written to a young preacher. So in three letters to two young preachers, God, Paul uses that word 11 times. Uh, Paul has something to say about godliness, apparently. Every believer should have godliness as their goal. But in particular, the man whom God has chosen to minister to his people has an even greater requirement to show God-likeness to those he ministers to. Because in even a greater way, especially those who are less mature in the faith, those people are looking to God's called servant as a pattern on how to live as a believer. That is the responsibility of every pastor and preacher and teacher. And that is why so much damage is done when a pastor behaves in a way that is not godly when he handles his ministry in the flesh without the spirit being in charge. And by the way, if you read the qualifications of a pastor in Scripture you'll find the pastor's wife carries similar responsibility and is also to be a pattern of how a godly woman ought to live. It is a grave responsibility when a husband and a wife agree to accept the call to ministry. It's one that must be made of all the understand, with the understanding of all that it entails by doing that. But I want you to look at this verse again, if you would. 1 Timothy 4.8. Because Paul's making another interesting point here. 
If you notice, he says, bodily exercise profiteth little, but godliness is profitable unto all things. Paul is taking and comparing the physical life to the spiritual life, taking care of our physical body and taking care of our spiritual body. And as many have pointed out, Paul does not say that exercise is useless, although many wish he did. <laughs> Paul expe- God expects us to care for this vessel that he's given to us because everything you do for God is done through this vessel. So he expects you to take care of it. But what Paul is saying is this, in terms of what is most important, caring for the spiritual is a much greater responsibility than caring for the physical. Not that both aren't important, but the spiritual is more important. And so interestingly, what Paul really focuses on here is Timothy's priorities, his priorities. I know this is not true of all young men. I'm not sure if this is true of Matt or not. But it's probably safe to say that younger men have more of an emphasis on staying healthy and staying fit than older men do. Uh, Typically, there is more of an interest to fight and to stay fit and look good when a person is younger as compared to when they're older and realize they've lost the battle. (laughs) Just sort of throw up the white flag and surrender and say, okay, we're going to muscle on through from here. You see, Paul is aware and we are aware. Please hear me. Distraction is one of the main tools that Satan will use. Distraction. Getting your mind onto other things. Getting your eyes onto other things. There are many believers who used to come to church. They don't come to church anymore. And the reason that they don't come to church anymore is because they've been allowed, they've allowed themselves to become distracted by things that don't matter. But they're not here. They're not in church today. There are many believers who used to serve God faithfully, but they don't serve God as faithfully as they used to because they responded to Satan's temptation to get their eyes focused on something else. The wrong thing. There are many pastors who at one time were focused on doing God's work the right way and the biblical way. But they became distracted by declining attendance. Or they became distracted by watching how other churches do ministry and they wanted to fit in. Or they became distracted by the reduction in the church's income as people began to go to churches that were more fun and more entertaining. And so what those pastors did was they changed the way they did ministry. They brought bought into the contemporary ways of doing things and left the old paths behind. Now, I want to make this point again. God is, Paul is not condemning physical exercise. There's value to that. It is simply not the first priority. And those who become distracted may become distracted by things that aren't necessarily wrong. They're just not best. A person might leave a church and leave their ministry behind with nobody to take over in order to do a different ministry. It's not wrong to do a, do, a, do, a, do a different ministry, but it is wrong to leave a ministry behind that God has called them to or leave it behind with nobody to take their place. That's wrong. Amen. Pastors who change their approach uh, to their church still want to do ministry. They still want to serve God. They just aren't doing it in the way that God called them to do it because Satan distracted them and adjusted their priorities. You watch during this week, folks, just keep track of how many times Satan tries to distract you from doing God's work. You come into this church and just watch how Satan's going to try and distract you by having something happen in this church that's going to get your eyes off him. Something's going to happen here, and you're going to say, how will God ever get us through this? You know what that is? That is Satan's distraction. You're supposed to be looking there. He's got you looking over here. And as long as he's got you looking over here, you're not watching where God wants you to go, and you're not doing his work. Be careful. Please be careful. Don't let stupid, ordinary, mundane, ridiculous things distract you from what God has called you to do. Here's the faithful saying. The faithful saying is this. Godliness is profitable unto all things. 
I want to express this in, in a series of questions to you. What is important to you? Answer to yourself. What is important to you? Is what is important to you important to God? Is what is important to you benefiting his work here on this earth? Is what is important to you helpful or harmful to those in the body of Christ that you associate with? Is what is important to you furthering God's work or is it hindering God's work? Does participating in what is important to you bring glory to God or does it bring reproach to the name of Jesus Christ or does it bring glory to yourself? Does what you are participating in bring people closer to God or draw them farther away from God? A minister of Jesus Christ has the unpleasant job of constantly challenging the priorities of those whom he's called to minister to. That is his called responsibility to challenge the priorities. And it can be frustrating and it can be discouraging. I will tell you from personal experience over the past 12 years of pastoring, it can get very discouraging sometimes to present God's word and have people still become distracted by things that don't matter. And get away or walk away or split things because of their distraction and not focus on what God has called them to. You see, the pastor's role is to constantly help people to see when Satan is distracting them with things that aren't best and help them get back on track again with things that are best. And I'm going to tell you something else. And Brother Matt, you know this, but I'll tell you again. This is the most challenging time to work in as far as distractions go. Because Satan has laid out a multitude of them. And there are so many screens around to get those things in your face every moment of every day. You can be distracted constantly if you're not careful. We are living in the age of distraction. Be careful. Be careful. Watch what you're following. Watch what you're following. Every believer has the necessity of living right priorities before those in the body of Christ. Every preacher has a, the, the responsibility of preaching on priorities and making clear what the, God's priorities are and helping these people to reach those priorities for themselves. But believer, you may not be called into full-time ministry. You may not be called into a pastoral ministry. But how you conduct your life and what you talk about and what you participate in should be a demonstration to those around you that you have right priorities, that you know what's important. And that you'll not be pulled in by Satan to focus on things that really are less important. Because here's what Paul knows. Here's what God's trying to tell us. Right priorities result in right living. Right priorities result in effective ministry. Godliness is profitable. Please look at the verse one more time. Godliness is profitable unto, say it, all things. All things. Godliness will affect every part of your life in a positive way. Faithful sayings. Pastor Matt, God has given you a wealth of information here to preach on. A wealth of material that's going to last you as long as your ministry goes. Praise God for that. Believer, listen to me. Paul has given you a renewed focus. He wants us to put these things into practice as well in our own lives. So that our lives will count for him. Others will be encouraged and challenged to live for him as a result of looking at us. Faithful sayings. Praise God for them. Heads bowed.